0: So today, I'll be preaching on a topic that is somewhat misunderstood, and it can potentially even be controversial. We haven't taught on this topic for quite a few years already, and over the course of my own life, I've had to study this, I've had to search the scriptures, I've had to pray through very honest questions, and I've had to come and land to a conclusion, independent Of whether it would, quote unquote, play out in my favor or not. And this topic is woman in ministry. The topic of woman in ministry. Oh, yes. (laughs) One lone woman, yeah. Um, So I was actually unaware that this past week it was International Women's Day. I, I... I can barely remember people's birthdays, let alone something like International Women's Day. But it's a very happy coincidence. I had actually planned on preaching on this topic, you know, weeks in advance. Um, But yes, the topic of women in ministry is seldom preached on and really exegetically, you know, biblically taught on. And it's been a long, long time uh, in coming for me to have to preach on this. Full disclosure, for a long time, our church was going through major transitions, and among those transitions, there was, I don't know if you guys remember, this was actually two, three, two years ago or so, we went through a church vote for an interim pastor you know, position and um you know i was voted in that day and then after that about a year after that we had an internal vote within staff and elders regarding a permanent lead pastor position and so we went through these different milestones as a church and during those times when we were about to go into vote i had so many people come to me and say like hey can you actually teach on women in ministry because we've actually we we don't know what the bible says about it and if we're going to vote for you or for someone else, then we better know what the Bible says. Um, I, back then I actually felt that it would be a bit uh, too like self-serving. If that sounds, you know, if that sounds right, like it would be a bit too much, like, you know, like serving for a certain agenda to get voted in or something. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. I feel the love today, Anita. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, and so I felt a bit uncomfortable, uh, you know, preaching on it a bit too early on, and I just feel like now it's time uh, for me to teach on this topic. So let me give you a little bit of background. New Philly, I am a female, single, lead, pastor, newsflash, yes, which, <laughs> wow, what is this becoming? <laughs> I love this. I I should preach on this every week. I feel (laughs) like, no, no. (laughs) Uh, So I understand that this is very rare. It is very rare. I was raised in very differing backgrounds, actually. Some of them completely, you know, mute regarding this topic, and some of them also very vocally against women in ministry, especially when it came to the position of preaching and teaching adult males, let alone serving as a lead pastor of a church. And so I have a very diverse background. Even, uh, you know, the seminary that I came out of, they are actually not open to ordaining women. Um, And I'll talk about that in in a little bit. But I've been in all too many settings, Or I am the only female pastor represented in a a sea of male pastors. And my standing is taken as maybe a little bit lower than if I had the very same credentials, very same upbringing, but just male. You know, just except if, if only I were male, you know, it kind of takes me down a notch, the fact that I'm a female Um, And I've been in so many settings where my decision to go into full-time ministry um, or, uh, you know, step up as pastoral staff was met either with bewilderment at best and blanket condemnation at worst. There's been too many times when there's no problem with me serving in any capacity except if I'm planning on taking the pulpit to preach. But today I will not be talking mostly about my personal experiences, even though I have plenty of that. I want us to go into the Bible because frankly, how I feel about it doesn't matter. You know, frankly, no matter how unfair I feel it is or no matter how, you know, unbalanced or what not my experience has been. If the Bible, if it's something that the Bible prohibits, then I need to honor the word of God, even if it doesn't play in my favor. Does that make sense? And so even in my journey, yes, I felt certain things and experienced certain things, but the last word had to come from the word of God. And this is something that I've gone through in my life over and over again. Every time that I either take a step up or took another position, I needed to be darn well sure that no matter how noble my intentions are, that I'm honoring the word of God, because if I'm not honoring the word of God, I'm not doing anybody any favors and I'm not stepping into agreement with God's truth. And so today we're going to be going mostly into the word and In my story, every chance that I've had to study this topic, I've had to out of necessity because I wanted to make sure that I'm able to stand up here in confidence and preach and teach and lead this church, knowing that God's word allows for it and not only allows and tolerates it, but also celebrates it. So I've made it a point over the years to ask for greater clarity regarding Scripture passages that at first sight are actually very jarring, very disorienting, and frankly, confusing. And I can say with confidence that the Holy Spirit has done his part, not only to confirm in my heart that women are allowed a place of leadership in the church, but the Holy Spirit has opened up the scriptures to bring greater clarity and greater boldness as I serve in this way. Because there's certain things that if you're raised in a church, certain sayings that are tossed around, and you hear it often enough where you begin to assume that, oh, that, that must be somewhere in the Bible, I guess. One of those terms that I've heard over and over again is male Headship in the church, male headship in the church. And this gets tossed around. And this was something that was, you know, brought up to me as well, especially when I was stepping up to take a lead pastor position here. But did you know, even though it sounds very familiar, it's actually nowhere in the Bible, this idea of male headship in the church. It is actually nowhere in the Bible. What the Bible does talk about is two things. One, the husband being the head of the wife in the context of mutual submission in a covenant relationship of marriage, not man in general being over woman in general, at the same time defining headship, not as decision-making, not as domineering, but as sacrifice and servanthood. It does talk about, that, yes. yes, that is the one thing that the Bible does say. And second, the Bible talks about headship of the church separately as belonging to one person and one person only. And his name is Jesus. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that there's male headship over the church. It belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone, not a man or a woman. And so with that said, we're actually going to go straight into one of the most quote-unquote anti-woman in ministry passages that get talked about most often. And at first sight, ladies here in the room, you're going to feel offended. I'm just going to preface that, okay? Just letting you know, you're going to feel a bit offended. Because I, I believe that it's important for us to look at this passage straight on. It is one of the most misunderstood passages in scripture. Um, but I feel like if we are able to disarm the misunderstandings surrounding this passage, we will have a lot more clarity about what the Bible says regarding women in ministry. So are we ready? We're going to go straight into a very, you know, very controversial, very misunderstood passage. And it is from First Timothy chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn there. I always love it. You know, when people actually have their physical Bible to turn to, because I could put whatever I want on the slides, right? (laughs) You know, I could make up, you know, a third Timothy somewhere, right? But I, I need you to see it in your Bible. It's been there always. It's a passage that whether we know that it's been there or not, um, it's been there all along first Timothy chapter two verses eight through 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 18 to 15. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, I have some slides that you can read along with, and I'm going to be reading from the ESV. It says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Dead silence here, yes. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. I feel like already the fence. I'm feeling it from here. This is the inspired word of God. This is just as Holy Spirit inspired as any other part in the Bible. And this is a letter that is addressed to Timothy, who was serving in the church of Ephesus. The first question that I want us to ask ourselves as we look at this passage, and we don't turn away because it's uncomfortable. We don't turn away because it's not PC, but we actually look at it and dare to believe that the Holy Spirit can give us revelation and understanding The first question that we need to be unafraid to ask is, what is the issue that Apostle Paul is addressing? What is this passage about? What is he talking about? Is he actually talking about gold and pearls and like, hey, you're not wearing something that is church appropriate? Is is that what he's getting at? Or is he going for something else? So we'll go through three different options of what it could be. And we need to know that Paul is a great apologist. And it, but it takes a bit of mental energy for us to track with his arguments. So it's going to require like all the alertness we can muster. We're going to follow the logic of his arguments. If this is indeed a passage regarding gender roles. And that is the way that Apostle Paul argued it. Then it follows that quote unquote Adam was formed first. Then Eve hence woman should learn quietly with all submissiveness and not teach nor exercise authority. The woman was deceived and not the man. Hence, women should learn quietly with all submissiveness and not teach or exercise authority. Yet, she'll be saved through childbearing. Yet, this is the one saving grace that she'll be given, and that is childbearing. And so this argument of looking at this passage as what the apostle Paul is addressing is gender roles. If we believe that that is his argument and his logic, then we also need to land at this. Adam was formed first. Hence, he can teach and exercise authority. The woman and not the man was deceived. Hence, only the man can teach and exercise authority because they are not deceived. And lastly, the woman will be saved through childbearing. And there is no talk about, what about the man who can't bear a child? Is he not going to get saved? So if it is a passage regarding gender roles, the logic is a bit splotchy. Because we have to land at certain conclusions regarding the fallenness of woman, but not of man. And the source of salvation that is given to woman but not men. And so it logically speaking, it's a very difficult argument to make. Also, what happens with women who don't bear children sucks for you, right? Is that what it is? Is that what apostle Paul is getting at? So in my humble opinion, I do not believe that this is a passage that is squarely talking about gender roles. The second uh, option of what it could be about is, is this a passage about orderly worship? What does it mean to have church together in an orderly way? And so the argument would still go. Adam was formed first, not woman. And that's why women should remain quiet while men teach. Woman was deceived, but not man. So women who are easily deceived should remain quiet while men who are not deceived are able to teach. Women will be saved through childbearing again. And orderly worship means that women should be quiet and, quote-unquote, stick to childbirth. That is what this passage would mean if this is a passage about simply orderly worship. What should worship look like within a church? Now, in this line of inquiry, what in the world does she'll be saved through childbearing mean? This should disturb you because this is the same guy. Who says, no man, no woman can be saved except through faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. It doesn't square up with Apostle Paul's soteriology, his theology of salvation. If that's what this passage means, then he's going against what he preaches in every other book. It means that he's contradicting even himself. And he's actually stepping into heresy. Can you imagine we had a church and every time we had a woman newcomer will be like, well, to the men, we're going to preach Christ and Christ crucified. But to you, you better start having children if you want to get saved. That would be terrible theology. If there's ever a church that ever says that, please exit immediately. That is a cult. You should not be there. All right. So this, the first clue that we get about What in the world he could be talking about is actually this word saved through childbearing, saved. That word in the Greek is actually sozo. I don't know if you guys have heard this. It's kind of a more trendy, more popular, trending word. Sozo, it doesn't just mean saved in the spiritual sense, but it also means preserved or spared. Like actually, like you survive through something. That is what it means to be sozoed. You're preserved through something. So this brings us to the third option of what this passage could be talking about. The third option, which I personally believe is the right one, is that this passage is an exhortation not to tolerate false teaching and infiltration of Greek cult practices into the church. This is a passage exhorting the church to remain in scripture, to remain an orthodox doctrine and not allow Greek cult practices to infiltrate into the church. This idea that it's not talking about, it's not a blanket statement about gender roles. It's not a blanket statement about orderly worship. But this is actually an admonition to not yield to false doctrines and false teachings. Where does uh, where do I get that idea? This idea of false teaching, it actually, uh, it can be based on three different things regarding the very specific audience that Apostle Paul was referring to. First, is that it was a letter addressed to a church in Ephesus that had the cult to Artemis. Do you guys remember back in middle school when you were learning about Greek mythology and all of that? Yeah. So Artemis is the Greek name. Uh, Diana is the, the, um, Roman name. Ephesus was a city that was like, you know, the, the epicenter of the cult to Artemis. Paul wrote to nine different geographic locations. 13 different letters, but to nine geographic locations. And he only had something to say about women's roles in three different locations. And they were cities that had a Greek goddess as their senior goddess. So Paul is writing to Timothy in Ephesus, a city that had Artemis as a main deity, the goddess of creation, the, God, the Greek goddess that had power over male gods. And Ephesus was a city where women came specifically to give birth because of the high mortality rate in mothers giving birth. And Artemis was a patron goddess of it. Does that make sense? So if somebody was about to give birth, think about any of your friends who have had babies. Imagine about all the different things that go into the preparation. The man, like, we need to make sure that we get to the right doctor. We get the right medication. We're prepared for it. Even now, it is very risky business. Imagine back in the day when you did not know if you would survive through childbirth. And so, women from all over the place would flock to the city of Ephesus when it came to give birth in order to pay their respects to this patron goddess Artemis. And so, this idea that women would come to this specific city to be preserved, to be sozoed through childbirth, makes absolute sense. Paul is saying here, women of Ephesus. In your fear and in your uncertainty, you have brought mixture into your faith and paid homage to a goddess that you no longer have to believe in. You will be preserved. You will be sozoed. You will be, um, you will make it through. You'll be spared through childbirth without having to bow down to Artemis anymore. Second. Greek mythology creation accounts. Again, this is all middle school knowledge. I've long since stopped thinking about this. In Greek mythology, it wasn't man that was made first. It was woman that was made first. This makes sense when Paul is saying, hey, Adam was made first. I'm like, Adam, Paul, what does this have anything to do with like women being quiet and submissive. Why do you bring up this argument that Adam was made first and then Eve in Greek mythology also was believed that the woman was not deceived, but the man was. And so this makes sense when Paul, when Paul is saying Adam was made first, then Eve and Eve was deceived, not Adam. So Paul isn't talking about, Qualifications to teach he is countering Greek mythological belief that man was deceived, but not woman because biblical belief. It isn't that Adam was more righteous because Eve was deceived, but Adam also was deceived and disobeyed. He's not saying that women are more easily deceived. He's saying that these women who are coming into the church from their Greek background of women dominating men, they are the ones who are being deceived right now. That's why he doesn't allow them to teach or exercise authority because of their Greek cultural filter and their worship model based on the temple of Artemis. Does this make sense? I think as as soon as you begin to connect the dots, you begin to... Be able to track and follow with Apostles Paul's logic. Otherwise, him throwing this thing out about Adam and then Eve and then Eve being deceived but not Adam, it makes absolutely no sense. Last thing, Greek cult practices. When Paul says, I do not allow women to, to exercise authority, this word authority in the Greek is not a blanket word that signifies leadership. The Bible has 47 different words for the word authority. And the word used in 1 Timothy originally meant to murder with one's own hand. Who acts in authority and exercises dominion to be dominant. So this word, particular word that Paul is using in this passage, it's not hey, you shouldn't be allowed to lead things. You shouldn't be allowed to dominate over people. And this goes to women and men. But this falls in line with this understanding that in Greek cult practice, that was the norm, that women would dominate over men. So does this check out? This is understanding this particular passage with a fuller understanding of historical Context does it check out if this indeed is a passage that is talking about false teaching and it's referring to the cult of Artemis infiltrating into the church. What apostle Paul is saying is number one, women should not dominate men as they are used to doing in the temple of Artemis Two, Adam was formed first, not woman. So don't believe in Greek mythology. Three, the woman was deceived and not the man. Again, counterpoint to the Greek belief. And fourth, she will be saved or preserved through childbearing. Not through Artemis, but through God. And it follows that they continue in faith. They continue in love. They continue in holiness with self-control. What is Paul saying? He's not saying, quote unquote, I do not permit a woman to utter a word inside the church. He's saying, I don't permit men and women from bringing in false teachings and cult practices into the house of God. He is saying, women of Ephesus have faith in God. You no longer have to scent to faith in God. But then fear, when fear comes knocking, then you pay homage to Artemis. You don't need to bring mixture into your faith. God is your protector. God is your healer. God is your provider. Let go of the Greek mythologies and the cult-like practices you grew up with and worship God alone. Have faith and fear not. Leave your old practices behind. Leave your old beliefs behind. Cling to God and to God alone. Alone. That is what apostle Paul is referring to in this passage. Something else that will give us a bit more confidence in our understanding that this is what he's meaning. Is that when we look at the Bible, although this Bible is comprised of 66 different books. And it's, uh, it's, it's made by 40 different Authors. Out of 40 different authors that wrote the entirety of this Bible, 39 of them empower women. And only one of them seemingly places restrictions on women. And that is Apostle Paul. But it's only in three out of 13 different letters. And those three exceptions that are made were specifically to cities that had Greek culture and Greek practices. When we look at the Bible as a comprehensive whole, we need to see if our understanding lines up with the rest of the context of Scripture. So is this interpretation, does it line up to the rest of 1 and 2 Timothy? Does it line up? Is it still true to the voice of Apostle Paul? Let me remind you once again that 1 and 2 Timothy were written to Timothy In Ephesus. And Timothy himself. According to scripture. Was taught. By his grandmother. Louis. And his mother. Eunice. Does it make sense. That apostle Paul. Would write a letter. To someone. Who was taught. By his grandmother. And mother. That says. Don't allow women to teach. Does that make any sense? He also ends up. In Second Timothy, giving his regards to Priscilla and Aquila, a wife and husband, who are teachers of the word and active leaders in the community. Would it make sense for Apostle Paul to write down, women should not lead in any way. Oh, by the way, hey Priscilla, how you doing? So good to hear from you. It doesn't make any sense if indeed they are women who are exercising authority and are teaching in that context. So this understanding, it makes sense in the context of 1st and 2nd Timothy. Now let's go a little bit wider. Does it make sense in accordance to the rest of the Pauline writings, the rest of his epistles? So like I said, out of 13 letters written by Paul, only three of them touch on the issue of women in ministry. And those three letters are addressed to Greek cities that were permeated with Greek mythology and cult practices. In fact, Paul seems at ease and even profoundly appreciative of women who aren't the quote unquote silent and submissive kind in his letters. He addresses female apostles. He addresses female deaconesses, female financiers and female teachers in the 13 letters that he's written. So it makes sense that in, in the, in view of all Pauline writings, that we don't interpret 1 Timothy 2 in such a narrow way, but we weigh it against the rest of his writings as well. A little bit further, New Testament writings. Does that line up with the rest of New Testament writings? In fact, the New Testament writings seem to point us in the opposite direction of women should be quiet and just stick to childbirth, Right? Women are sitting under Jesus' ministry. Women are valued and given a voice by Jesus. Women spread the gospel, finance ministry endeavors, serve their community, and were held in high esteem. Jesus seems to go out of his way to include them in his redemptive story and in his ministry, giving them a place of honor and even defending their right to have a place there when others even might voice. Objections. That seems to be the general narrative of all New Testament writings. And lastly, does it make sense in the context of the whole council of God? So the whole of scripture, the whole of the Bible, because whether it's a book that's written by Mark or Paul or Moses or Isaiah or, you know, or whoever, it doesn't matter which of the 66 books you pick out of the Bible. The one true author, the ultimate author, is the Holy Spirit who seems to be unashamed to uplift women in active leadership roles, not just as an exception to the rule, but as examples to be emulated. The Holy Spirit doesn't seem to be very apologetic about like, oh, sorry, guys, this is going to be a female, okay? I hope you guys are okay with... He doesn't seem to apologize for that at all. In fact, it seems to celebrate celebrate leadership, celebrate servanthood, celebrate teaching by women as it was prophesied in Joel and fulfilled in part in acts two with the baptism of the Holy spirit in the last days, it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my flesh, uh, pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Let me just quickly run through a laundry list of women in the Bible who did exactly that. Women who prophesied. In Exodus 15, we have Miriam the prophetess. In Judges 4, we have Deborah the prophetess and A judge, judge, meaning prime minister. Like we're not talking about somebody just, you know, like, like a judge with a robe and that it's the prime minister of Israel was actually a woman. Second Kings 22 talks about Huldah, the prophetess. Isaiah eight says that Isaiah's wife was a prophetess whose name is not revealed in Luke two. Anna is the praying prophetess who's present when Jesus and his parents come to dedicate him at the temple. In Luke 1, we see Elizabeth and Mary, although when we read their accounts, we see it almost as, you know, it's just them talking to each other. They're actually prophesying concerning the destiny of Mary's child within. In Acts 21, we see Philip the evangelist. He had not one, not two, not three, he had four daughters that prophesied. Some translations say who were prophetesses. So we see all over the Bible, both Old and New Testament, that we see women are acting out that Joel 2 prophecy, that Acts 2 prophecy. Other examples, a biblical woman. We see, obviously, Esther, a godly queen who, through her intercession, she saved the Jewish race. Once again, we see Deborah who was the judge, the leader, the prime minister of Israel, chosen by God. We have Jael. Oh, this, this is a really hardcore woman. If you guys don't know who she is, please open up to Judges 4 at a certain point. She drove a tent peg into Sisera's head and delivered him into the hands of Barak. And so if we're not talking about the, oh, let me do the dishes kind of woman. We're, we're talking about somebody who drove a tent peg through a man, right? Yeah, yeah there you go. That's biblical womanhood, guys. Uh, So Deborah prophesied that the Lord would give Sisera to Barak, and God did it through the hands of a woman. That was his chosen vessel to deliver someone to Barak. The Proverbs 31 woman. This is something that gets tossed around a lot. And the people who do that probably haven't read Proverbs 31, because when you read Proverbs 31, we see a woman who's not just the very domesticated kind. She was involved in household and business issues. She bought and sold real estate. She ministered to the poor. We're not talking about a, I'm not going to talk in public kind of woman. We're talking about somebody who exercises leadership and boldness. We see the woman at the well in John 4. She was considered by many people to be the first evangelist in the Bible as she went forth proclaiming the good news of Christ in John 4. We see Mary Magdalene in Matthew 28. She was the first to give the good news of the empty tomb, the resurrection of Christ. She was the first person to do that. I find it so interesting that God chose a woman to do that, right? It's almost, for me, it feels like God is going out of his way to make a point here, right? It could have been a guy. It could have been any of the 12, right? But he chose Mary Magdalene to be the first to proclaim he is risen. We see Junius, the female described as outstanding among the apostles addressed by Paul in Romans 16. We see Phoebe in Romans 16, also a deaconess who washed the feet of the saints. We see in Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila, they're most likely a wife and husband. Priscilla is a female, you know, a, a, a proper noun. Um, so Priscilla and Aquila were most likely a female and husband teaching team, explaining the word of God with accuracy. Do you remember in a certain part in, in um. Apostle Paul's writings, he talks about this guy called Apollos, who is like a really gifted teacher. Priscilla and Aquila actually heard him preach, and they actually brought correction to this person. They're like, actually, you're not fully teaching, you know, proper doctrine. Let us correct you and bring you back into orthodox teaching. They actually were so gifted in their teaching that they were the ones to correct him. And in Acts 16, we see Lydia, she's noted as the first convert in all of Europe, and she was one of the main financiers for Apostle Paul's ministry. And then finally, of course, I've already talked about them. There's Louis and Eunice, Timothy's grandmother and mother who taught Timothy on the faith. So, all over the Bible, we see these images and these pictures of women who are not being silenced, who are not being cast to the wayside, who are not just put in the periphery, let the men do the ministry while you do something else. We see women taking an active role and God actively celebrating and encouraging that. This is my point for today. We need to know the scriptures. We need to know the scriptures because at first sight, when you read a passage like 1 Timothy 2, you run to conclusions right away, don't you? It should feel uncomfortable when you read it. And it feels uncomfortable because it doesn't line up with your understanding of the rest of scripture. You're like, well, I thought Jesus, he actually seemed to celebrate women. How does that fit into that? Like, oh, but wasn't there, you know, a female judge? Oh, wasn't there a female prophetess? Wasn't there, you know, it shouldn't, it should feel uncomfortable because of that, because of that, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't align up with our understanding of the scripture. So we need to know and we need to honor the scriptures. Men of God. So let me address briefly the men here in this room. My plea is that you would not only tolerate, but grow to celebrate and encourage a woman's place in the church. Whether you see it or feel it or not, Women face tremendous bias and unspoken obstacles, often, unfortunately, more so inside the church than outside of the church. People have a greater problem with a woman preacher than a woman CEO. Right? It would be much, my life would be so much easier if I was a CEO, right? That's what I'm trying to say, right? So more often, the condemnation comes from within the church, within Bible-believing men of God. And it's often from a place of oversimplistic lack of study and searching of the scriptures because this is often what gets tossed around. Well, it doesn't affect me, right? It doesn't really affect me. Should I really, you know, put the time in to like search the scriptures and really come to a conclusion on this. It doesn't really affect me, but much of the change needed in the church won't come just from women stepping up. It'll also come from men making a place for them, rooting them onwards, And my hope is that you take it upon yourself to study this and make it a personal thing for you too, whether you feel like it affects you or not. And may I ask that you show empathy to your sisters in Christ in the church when they voice feeling overlooked or patronized or subtly or not so subtly discriminated against. It will cost you nothing to listen and you may gain some insight into a part of the body of Christ that may be hurting And if you don't agree with this theologically, please, I ask that you show your dissent in a way that is respectful and honoring. I understand that not everybody lands at that conclusion, and that's okay. But the way that you express your dissent is still must be respectful and honoring. Let me tell you a brief story. So I, I briefly mentioned that I was um, you know, I got my seminary degree. I got my MDiv at a, at a seminary that actually didn't ordain women and didn't believe in women preachers. So there was one course requirement that was preaching. But for women, they called it, a, they had a separate class called Women in Communication. Right? Right? Yeah, sneaky, anyway. It's kind of a sneaky way to go around it, right? And so it was a requirement for you to graduate. You needed to take this woman in communication class. And, you know, this is me being honest. Number one, I didn't want to take that class. I wanted to take the preaching class. And second, like, the women in communication class actually didn't fit into my schedule. Eh, right? And so I just signed up for the preaching class. <laughs> right? Just signed up for the preaching class. Um, and behind the scenes, there was a bit of commotion. Uh, behind the scenes, you know, it had, it, I heard that it went all the way up to the president of the seminary and it had to be cleared. Anyway... By the time um, I, I, you know, I, I was contacted and I was like, like hey, uh, I don't think you're aware, but um, we have a woman in communications class that you might want to take. Um, and I said, oh, sorry, it doesn't fit my schedule. Sorry. <laughs> you know, I just left it at that. And they're like, oh, okay. 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 Um, sure. Okay. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and you need this to graduate. Okay. Got it. Uh, okay. Let, uh, we'll get back to you. And eventually they basically let me, you know, they let me take this course. The first day of class, this is so sad. I came five minutes late to class, the first day of class. And unfortunately, the entrance door was like at the front of the class. So the teacher is here. It's like this door, right? So I opened up like, I'm so sorry. I'm late. But here's what happened. And I think it was kind of God-ordained that I came in five minutes late. The professor, his name was uh, Dr. Heisler. He was in the middle of explaining to a class of all men, that there would be one female taking that class. You know, he's in the middle of explaining it, like, I don't want you guys to panic, you know? I don't want you guys to think that she's lost or something, but we have a fellow, you know, sister in Christ who's going to be taking this class, and I expect you to treat her with respect. And that did so much for me. That one person standing up for my right to take a class, and, you know, granted... You know, all, all these other things could have happened, but he stood up. You know, and he made it inexcusable for somebody to treat me differently. He said, "I, I, I will not bear it if anybody here." You know, there's like all kinds of horror stories within you know, a certain circle of, like, men standing up in the middle of a woman preaching and leaving the room or turning their chairs around. Like, this stuff actually happens. We're not talking about, like, 1950s. We're talking about, like, 10 years ago. We're talking about, you know, even today in some places where men will actually turn their chairs around when there's a woman preaching. This thing, this seems unthinkable here, but this actually still happens. And so this professor... You said, this is not acceptable in my class. And while you're in my class, you're going to treat her with respect, just like you would a, a, a different colleague. And she's going to be taking this class, and you're going to treat her with respect. So someone like that standing up for me actually opened the door for me to take that class. And I loved that class. And, you know, 10 years later, here I am, <laughs> preaching, right? <laughs> like, who would have thought, right? I mean... Would I be here if I had taken women in communication instead? I have no idea. But all that to say is like the fact that one person, one man of God stood up and made a place for me. He wasn't like ordaining me as a female, you know, pastor. He was just saying, Hey, we're going to give her an opportunity here and you're going to treat her just like you would a colleague. Even just that, that meant the world to me. And this is what I mean when I say it's going to take more than just women stepping up. It's actually going to take men Of God who know the scriptures, who are confident about what the scripture means, making a place, celebrating, encouraging, rooting on your sisters in Christ for this to happen. This is me addressing the men of God. Now, women of God, maybe today you need to hear that you're not a stand in, that you're not a substitute. That the body of Christ needs you and the body of Christ is incomplete without you. You have a part to play. You have a voice that needs to be heard. And if you've experienced times in your life when you felt unwelcome or barely to- tolerated, be kind, be wise, be prayerful, and more than anything else, lean your ear to what you hear your Heavenly Father saying about you. You're honored, you're seen, you're designed to support and lead. You're designed to help and also pioneer. You're designed to be an active listener and to contribute to the conversation. There's women who have paved a way, paying a very high price so that someone like me can serve today as a lead pastor. And I have to thank those women for their courage, their perseverance, for pushing through misunderstandings, pushing through condemnation, pushing through even ridicule. To honor a God given, spirit breathed calling to build the body of Christ. There are women who have gone before us who have paid the price. Now, as I close, um, if I can invite the praise team up. This is not about an agenda, and this is not about defending a certain point of view. I believe this has everything to do with the gospel. Because the gospel frees us as sons and daughters of God to run after God in a way that was inaccessible to us. Whether we were men or women, God was off limits for us. And what the gospel did is open up the way for us to approach Him with boldness as children of God. In the letter. To Galatians, Paul, the very same author that penned 1 Timothy 2, in the letter to Galatians, he says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ and put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In the gospel, and in the gospel alone, we find the humility to know that we're not entitled to anything, whether we're man or woman. We find the humility to know that God owed us nothing. Whether we were male or female, Jew nor Gentile, we find that humility. And at the same time, we find the boldness to dare to believe that we are heirs to the promises through what Christ has done for us. This is the beauty of the gospel. It frees us and it elevates us higher than we ever thought would be possible. We were taken from the deepest depths of death now seated in heavenly places. This goes for both men and women. So for those who assume that they can, quote unquote, exercise authority in the wrong sense of the word. For those who assume they can dominate or intimidate or crush. The gospel says, behold your savior who came not to dominate. He came not to enslave, but to be the lowest of the lows. To bend down. And wash your feet to die on a cross for you and for me. This is real leadership. This is real power. This is real faith. And for those who have felt unduly silenced and overlooked, the gospel says, behold your king who has elevated you, raised you to heavenly places, given you boldness, given you value, given you dignity and worth. He sees you. He has a purpose for you. And even if the world were to say otherwise, you just need to be accountable to him and to him alone. That is what the word of God says the gospel has done for us. It gives us absolute humility to receive things, not from a place of entitlement, but from a place of gratefulness. And it also gives us the boldness to step into what God has called us to do to be the body of Christ. A whole body. Not with limbs missing. Not with people silenced. But a whole body that celebrates the beauty and design and orchestration of God. So I'm going to take a time for us to pray today. For many of you, this might be the first time that you hear this being taught. And it might take a bit of time to process this. I encourage you Search the scriptures. You have nothing to lose. Search the scriptures. See what it is that the Word of God says about this. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what I preach, it doesn't matter what kind of slides I put up, it doesn't matter how I articulate this. What matters is what the Word of God says in the end. And so I encourage you search the scriptures. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation for us to understand the whole counsel of his word. And for those who might have experienced within the church hurt, whether it's outright vocalized and in your face or whether it's very subtle, I ask that the Holy Spirit would bring healing to those areas in our hearts. That God would replace words of condemnation with words of hope, words of restoration. And that we would dare to believe that He has a hope and a future for us. So, Father, we come before your word, we come before your Holy Spirit we ask father that despite the discomfort of talking about certain topics, despite the discomfort of acknowledging certain realities within the body of Christ, I pray that your Holy spirit and your word would win in the end. That what you say matters above everything else. There is no preacher. There is no teacher. There's no author. That goes beyond the authority of the word of god and so we allow your word we allow your word to speak to us today we allow your word to tell us who we are we allow your word to tell us how we ought to live and how we ought to think i ask father that this would be ultimately not for our advancement it would be ultimately for your glory We know, God, that there are things that you want to do through the church. And as long as a church is hurting, as long as a church is incomplete, as long as the body is incomplete, there's going to be things that you have prophesied for the church to do, especially in the end times, that will not be possible unless women of God rise up to take their place. So we pray, Father, in hope in humility and in boldness that you would have your way in your church, that we would not look away from your truth. We would trust that you know what's best for us. We would trust your heart and your intentions and that we would dare to believe, God, that you have a plan and a purpose for your bride. We thank you, Father. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name i